new beginning. New beginning. Everybody to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Once again, hi everyone. Thank you for listening in. And uh, yeah, once again, very excited to talk uh, to our next guest about his life and his journey. Yeah, his name is Travis Hodges. He is a he does his research at Brock and PhD behavioral and cognitive neuroscience streams. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. On rats and their behavior and their brains. And you're from Manitoba. Yeah. Beautiful province. Yes, yes, yes. I do. I did grow up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I just moved here for my master's four years ago and stayed on for my PhD. And now I'm going to be here for another two years, and then we'll see what happens after that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's always an interesting journey, right? The, the academic journey. Mm-hmm. And so you came here. So in Manitoba, did you go to a university down there? Did they have universities? I don't know much about Manitoba. There's <laughs> <No laughs> a large province. <laughs> We just sit there and just <laughs> learn from the lab. Um, <laughs> I did go, I went to um, French immersion actually all my life up to throughout high school and throughout grade school. And then I went to University of Manitoba and did my undergrad there. Um, and right when I got into University of Manitoba, I did start on the psychology route. Um, I, my focus at the beginning was that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, which is what it felt like, but it didn't, things didn't turn out that way. But in my first year, I took so intro bio, intro chemistry, okay. intro physics, and psychology, nice. and everything kind of at once. I literally algebra for fun. But my focus um, switched to kind of more the neuroscience route. Actually, in my fourth year of my undergrad, I kind of made that switch right mm-hmm. then and did started doing animal research kind of in my last year of my undergrad and that's kind of when things kind of flipped over and I got an interest in stress research and that brought me over to Brock for specifically to study stress and what its impact is on the brain. So that's Wow, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I know uh, we were talking about uh, St. Catharines is kind of like Manitoba, is that correct? So the part of Winnipeg that I'm from is very quiet. Uh, not much happens there. Student kids are bored. Um, <laughs> people leave their doors open because they're like, oh, there's no robberies that are going to happen down here. Oh, okay. um, so it's very quiet and, and it's kind of what I feel um, from St. Catharines. And so it's very easy to adjust to St. Catharines. Whereas if I move somewhere like to Toronto, which we were also talking about earlier, yes. um, I feel like it'd be a great change from mm-hmm. what my life was like in so are you saying you leave your doors open? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That> well, <laughs> it was kind of a coin thing. If you ever came to my house, like my door was always kind of open. Like our house door was always open. Yeah. Um, the craziest thing that ever happened on our street was like, <laughs> they was like this um, paper going around of someone being like, someone threw an egg at my house. Oh, I don't know who it was. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe someone threw an egg at my house. This is the problem. Yeah, this is the biggest problem that we have. Um, so, but it's very different in south of Winnipeg than it is from um, other parts of Winnipeg. There's parts of Winnipeg that I've kind of never been okay. my whole life because everything was in the southern southern part. So I never had to go to the northern more sections. But there is there is a lot of crime in Winnipeg, but I, things that I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very strange how okay. there's like an actual, it's a line somewhere in Winnipeg where there's lots of crime after that line, but we were very kind of sheltered um, in our, where I grew up. And so it's a great place to raise a family where I kind of grew up, but um, I'm sure there is more, more crazy areas right. outside of my bubble that yeah. I lived in. So that's good, you're, you're still in the bubble here in St. Catharines, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes, not much has changed, but so you're still in the bubble. Right, you feel safe, and that's sort of the most important thing, because you got to do research, right? And so, what made mm-hmm. you come to Brock? Was it like a big process? Was there a lot of people you wanted to, um, yeah. I guess, do your MA and your PhD with? Like, why did you choose the school? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to work um, in stress, uh, for one, and I knew I wanted to know the impact of stress on the brain. Um, for two. So I looked up a bunch of professors. Um, I did the whole thing where you make a list and I looked up you kind of a twice. bit of, yeah, <laughs> I'm a Santa Claus, uh, and uh, looked at what all of them did. I sent them all individual emails to say, like, I want to work with you for this reason or that reason. 
Um, at Brock, there was a couple professors that I sent emails to, uh, but Cheryl, um, Cheryl McCormick, who I work with now, and she responded so fast right yes. away. She was very interested, in, uh, especially, I think, because of my background of I've already worked with animals before. Um, oh, and, that was because you were from the MTO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted someone from, <laughs> she wanted someone from Winnipeg. I have the other provinces. <laughs> I lack Manitoba. I lack Manitoba. <laughs> Everyone likes Manitoba. No one knows where it is. I still feel so good with my Manitoba license slate that I have. I'm so new. It's been four years. Uh, so I did that process, and I kind of sent it out with um, the feeling of if it doesn't go anywhere, then I'll be fine. I'll, uh, I have other things that I love to do that I can pursue a little bit closer. Um, but also, I was... Um, kind of hoping <laughs> so much that I was going to get to one of these universities and she responded so quickly and we started talking and she actually said she was like I'll fly you out here come to my lab oh, wow. so I can come so you can Excellent. come see it yeah. so I came out and saw the lab and everything that I'd be working with um, and I'm very easily adjustable to <laughs> a lot of things animal research wise so I didn't have a, I didn't take me much to kind of um, integrate into the lab, um, integrate into what ended up being me taking brains and things of sort to do my research. Yeah. Um, I was fine with. That's nice, and I'm glad you had this like right away. You saw, I think, her personality fit yours, and she was very um, maybe supportive of you doing the work here in sense of flying you down. Um, yes. And I've had her as a professor in one of my courses, professional issues course. Yeah, she's a wonderful lady. And I think people, you know, out there um, that maybe want to apply to grad school, they forget that you're with this person for the majority of all your, your yes. academic career and you have to get along, right? Like, so was that an important part and so when you met her that like she fit um, in the sense of who you wanted to be working with? Yeah, it was hard because at the beginning, I don't even remember thinking to myself, like, will we fit personality-wise. Mm. Um, it felt like we did, yeah. but it's been four years, and a lot can happen. And a lot can happen in one year, let yeah. alone yeah. uh, four years long. Uh, but it kind of, luckily, it turned out that our personality, she is a workaholic, and I am also a workaholic, so nice. we kind of fit together very nicely yeah. in that. And so my work ethic kind of pushed me through. And she's kind of, <laughs> she she's good at, um, um, she's very opinionated, um, and she's good at giving very harsh advice, uh, but things like that kind of bounce off me, but I also take in that advice and um, use it myself, so um, I can <laughs> take any of the harshness, and yeah. it does nothing to change um, how I feel oh, inside, good. and then I can still implement that and she congratulates me on this is amazing work and oh, I'm like, nice. so she gives that goodness. positive reinforcement yes when you take those suggestions you move yes. forward because it's like a learning process and mm -hmm. i think it'd be hard for supervisors to mold you in a way that doesn't affect your self-esteem yes and they all have different teaching styles and i could see that if someone uh, wasn't strong enough to take um, harsh harsh criticism that they probably wanted to work out in um, the kind of lab that i'm in whereas mm -hmm. in another lab maybe Harsh um, it's a little less of not as harsh criticism. Right. They take that a little bit easier. Um, so it kind of ended up lucky for me that um, <laughs> I could take that kind of criticism and not feel any different about it to kind of work it to my advantage. Yeah, yes, it will. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what makes a lot of people be able to graduate. I think uh, when you mm -hmm. come in, said like there's, it's not like everyone gets in. It's like you get, it's, it's a process where like very limited spots are available. And so when you do get in, a lot of times I think people just want to get in. They don't really care who they are with, and they just yeah. want to get in to get an MA or whatever. That's their goal, and they they'll go with anyone. But I think like the, I think the main focus is like you got to really pick wisely, or you may go into your MA and not even finish. You'll drop out. Exactly. Exactly. Have you have you had seen anyone drop out along your way? Um, along my way, um, I have seen people. Uh, no one really dropped out. I feel like they at least did their masters, and then I've seen people in my cohort kind of continue on with me to mm -hmm. to, to the PhD. Um, others that just didn't want to do their PhD because they were like, I'm done with this, <laughs> never again, kind of a thing from yeah. their experience with their advisor um, and gone on to different 
um, things kind of in a similar field, but um, not doing the academic uh, route anymore based on their experience with their advisors. Right. Um, so it can very much be the case. They stuck with it at least for their masters, well, but it can be the case that yes, you're, you don't fit well with your advisor and kind of you know, like that, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I've stay. seen that along my, my journey. Right? People dropping out, like one like could be a supervisor in the lab. Um, it also could be like finances and like you yes. don't get like crazy fun like a lot of people say oh like, you're doing a PhD oh that's great I'm like yeah but like, you're not really making money you know no. like, and so it's still a struggle so you're not here. at first <laughs> not at first yeah <laughs> that's the plan but it also took professional issues and that's uh, worries me but before <laughs> um, but it's just like yeah like it's a struggle all the way through it's not just about doing your research but also surviving and so I, I think a lot of people do drop out also because they can't be they don't can't maintain a certain lifestyle that you used to. Yes. Um, even just like rent and food, like, it's expensive stuff, especially if you move to a different city. I'm lucky, like I get to sort of uh, live with my mom, which is, yeah, it's a beautiful experience um, mm -hmm. because I don't have the extra stress of, okay, you need like $800 a month, yes. you know, to just, just to sort of have rent. Right? Speaking of stress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right? Yeah, right? So I'm actually, I'm very grateful to be at Brock. This is where I grew up um, moving forward. So uh, I want to say like we met, uh, two years ago, we started the program at the same time, and uh, I just want to like touch on. We just went to uh, colleagues and a friend's uh, birthday party, and we went to this like escape room. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us about you know what an escape room is and your experience with it. <laughs> Explain escape room. <laughs> well, so escape room is so they give you a certain amount of time, um, and you have to do a bunch of puzzles to escape a room. Um, and the room can be themed in many different ways. I've been to a few escape rooms at this point, um, some horror-based, some um, prison escape-based and things mm -hmm. like that. You have to unlock a bunch of boxes and things. Um, and the funniest thing actually about this, this escape room that we went to, um, the person's birthday who we went to before, um, she does not like scary things. And so it was very surprising when we walked into that room of dolls that had nails through their heads and, <laughs> and eyes missing and things and dark room that we had to use flashlights. I was like, this is not what she, and she was freaking, I, I don't know if you noticed, but she was not enjoying a lot of that. I had to kind of just keep her um, feeling okay. I'm like, it's all right, it's okay. Uh, no worries. Uh, <laughs> Let's go look at this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. No, she would be like, look at that one. It has like nail through its eye. And I'm like, oh, don't look at that. And you just look over yeah. here. Like, Focus on the this floor. Is the, this is the puzzle we're dealing with, those things like that. Yeah. Um, but very funny story. I do love escape rooms. Well, that's very interesting because that just shows that we're all so different in that type of stress, mm -hmm. you know, it, some people get motivated by that. Sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes mm -hmm. they love it. People like me hate places like that because <laughs> I like leisure activities. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to be stressed. Yes, yes, yes. It's very interesting. Everybody's different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's different because everyone takes in stress differently. In that kind of situation, like I'm not a fan of being in that kind of situation, but I'm also, um, I try my best to kind of, keep my stress down low yeah. and I can't tell, um, a lot of us can't tell exactly um, how much of a stress response we're actually having. Um, and that's kind of a lot of what my research is based on um, when it comes to a lot of people telling you they feel this amount of stress, mm -hmm. but in actuality, if you look at things like um, their cortisol um, response, which is an indicator of um, stress, mm -hmm. if you look at their cortisol, um, you see that even though they say that they're not that stressed, they can have a high cortisol response. Oh, yeah. um, and if that continues, if they have a high cortisol response, and if that continues repeatedly, um, that can have um, so many different effects um, on how your brain will change from um, uh, when you're a child or when you're an adolescent to when you're an adult. Um, and it can change so much, even if you don't even know it, it's, it's doing those changes. Um, and so it's best to, it's hard. I try, it's best to try and kind of, coping mechanisms is a big thing. Um, a big thing in my research and a big thing in just stress research overall. Coping with stress and trying to lower down that stress as much as you can, um, kind of, um, and that's externally as much as you can externally, can really change um, how that stress is going to affect you later on. Mm. Um, <laughs> so what, what's one way you cope with stress? 
Um, me, it is a lot of music. Oh, okay. Uh, like singing? Are you a singer? Are you a dancer? I used to sing. Okay. I used to play instruments a lot. I dance a lot. Um, I still I still sing now, but I used to be in a choir and vocal jazz when I was um, younger and in high school and things. Mm -hmm. um, and in undergrad, actually. Oh, who are so, you? Hey. Um, and I used to um, arrange songs for a music group that I was in as well. Um, uh, songs that had like five-part harmonies or six-part harmonies. I would change songs on the radio to songs that we could sing uh, with six-part harmony without any instruments and things like that. And I do that. Um, I play uh, piano. I play guitar. Um, not as much now because I'm so busy with <laughs> work all the time. Uh, but my guitar just kind of sits there and watches me from afar. And I always look at it like, I wish. <laughs> Lock me. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but yes, music is what I used to cope. And in every stressful situation I'm in, a lot of what I, times what I do is just put the headphones in and just mm -hmm. kind of turn on a song Great. kind of similar to that, uh, or specific to that situation and kind of that okay. helps me get so through. So like, uh, would it be like, maybe, like what kind of music like lords that for you? Is it like jazz? Is it maybe some rap? It's, is it like it depends. disco? Like what's... It depends okay. on the situation. <laughs> I listen to a lot. If you turned on my iPod and put it on random play, I'd be afraid because who knows what would pop up. There'd be Disney songs, yeah. there'd be Screamo songs, there'd be okay. rap songs, there'd be R&B, wow. there'd be a rock song. It depends yeah, on how I'm feeling at the time. Okay. Changes from week to week and um, different situations I've had to deal with. Um, different things um, <laughs> kind of concerning our podcast and when it comes to losing someone I've had to um, find songs that would kind of help me get through that mm -hmm. um, and they've been kind of more slower songs yeah. um, I, I love ballads ballads are one of my favorite things okay. to sing and to listen to I do love ballads and so when you're in the lab let's say you get a a result that you didn't want. Let's say you didn't get significance, right? <laughs> do you do a dance just to lower your, your cortisol level? <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> I think it might hit something. <laughs> I feel like my music's just always in my ears. Um, I will say that I do dance and sing a lot in the lab. Like okay. If you ever walk by my lab, <laughs> um, when I have volunteers in it, like I force them, I'm like, we're going to watch Shrek 2 today and sing these songs. <laughs> we're going to watch the Goofy movie today and sing these songs while slicing brains together <laughs> and do things like that. So I integrate music into kind of everything I do. Oh, um, and I think that is that does keep me, if it's just quiet, like you, you think about way yeah. too much. Um, uh, yeah, I think too, like moving the body is a great thing. I I'm, was never a great dancer and I never did dance at all. And only like recently I started to, maybe the last like maybe four years, three Ooh. years, I started to just dance, you know, with music or like walking down the street, yes. actually like feel the music. And it, like it just—it's freeing, right? Cause yes. I think I didn't—I didn't dance because I was afraid that people would judge me, which they would. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't very good, right? And like, so no one taught me how to dance. So now I'm just like, even nowadays, I—I I just do what I do, and then you know, maybe it looks decent, half decent, but then it doesn't matter. It's about just a feeling, right? Mm -hmm. It's a beauty, and it's a lot of times it's an involuntary movement, and it's joy manifesting. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I talk about my dog a lot. <laughs> my dog comes to greet. You know, he does this little butt movement. You know, <laughs> and, and it's so involuntary, but it's happiness, right? Man, yeah. it's fascinating. It's dance, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's dance. <laughs> so do you dance, Sean? I dance every now and then, yeah. Less yeah, now than that I'm older, but you know, I'll, have, I'll find a moment when I'm in the car and I feel the right beat. Oh, I see. Like yeah, that. you do yeah. shoulder yeah. dance. Yeah. <laughs> you just do shoulder uh, dance. I do the full oh. And I like want people to look at like a girl. <laughs> the car's jerking back and forth. <laughs> I'm like, Woo. I used to dance a lot more in... Um, High school, university. I was on a dance team, so you know Ooh. it's been there, yeah. been there, done that. Moves done I was stuff. never that great. Oh, okay. but that's all right. <laughs> that's... <laughs> oh my gosh! No, I um, actually I lived with. Um, I used to live with three other grad students in the psychology program, actually here at Brock University. And what we would do is a lot of the time, um, at one point, we would have our own dance party um, in our house at certain times of the week. So in the middle of the week, when things were too stressful kind of all around, mm -hmm. we would turn music on and all four of us would have a dance party <laughs> to ourselves. Oh, cool. We'd just turn on the music, one of us would just turn it on. We wouldn't plan it or anything. Someone would crank up a tune and we'd all come out of our rooms yes. and things and just 
have a dance party to dance it out, and we do that kind of twice or three times a week, and just to kind of dance all kind of stress. <laughs> That's the beauty of roommates, and I did a lot of that when I was. Yeah. In- all right, so uh, let's like move on. Then. Great talking just about life and everything. I think, you know, this podcast go for hours. Um, but now let's talk about uh, the research that you're doing, right? So I think that's very interesting. And a lot of people, I don't know a lot about it because that's not my my field. Um, but you published papers in this area, am I correct? Yes, yes, yes. I published um, a few papers. My focus is um, adolescent stress um, and adolescent stress and the effects on behavior, either um, during adolescence or behavior when they reach adulthood. Okay. Um, and kind of what changes in the brain that happens from that stress that are leading to those changes in behavior. So what do you, what do you find with that in the sense of does it, like what parts of the brain does it change and mm-hmm. why? Yeah, so there's many, um, I focus mostly on parts of the brain involved in um, social behavior. Um, and a lot of those uh, brain regions are also involved in everything else, um, in different kinds of memory and um, they're all involved in stress. Um, brain regions like uh, the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and the amygdala, um, all very much involved in stress, all going through um, a lot of change during adolescence, um, and also all involved in social behaviors as well. Um, and so what can happen is you can have stress early in life um, that changes kind of how those brain regions um, will respond to stressors later on, or will respond to social behaviors later on, um, and that'll lead to what I would call kind of an impairment in um, social behavior um, that comes out later on. Um, so you're saying you're essentially changing your biology mm-hmm. based on just uh, an event? Anything, wow. yes. And a lot of what I've learned now is kind of <laughs> makes me, uh, <laughs> not sad, but um, when I, uh, I, I'm a teaching assistant in the stress course here. I've done it twice already at Brock University. Um, and a lot of what we learn all the time is that if you, if you experience the stress early in life, then you're already kind of changed towards adulthood. Um, and there's, it's very hard to change, um, <laughs> to kind of uh, regulate that once it's already occurred. Um, so, um, and I've, I've read some papers on um, there's coping mechanisms that you can use during adolescent period to kind of um, help with that stress of uh, those stressors that occurred when you were younger or younger in life. But a lot of what happens when you're young uh, will affect um, how your brain will be uh, when you're an adult. Um, it'll change your social behavior and it'll change. Um, so what kinds of like social, when you talk about social behavior, what does that mean mm-hmm. and how does that change? Yeah, so when I do social behavior with, uh, with rats, because I study rats, um, a lot of it is social interactions, how they interact together, um, how they play, because um, rats do love to play. Oh, they do? Okay. Uh, yes. So how would they, would they, how would they play differently? So mm-hmm. do you unpack that? Like, do they fight? Do they, like, does one, like, you know, doesn't share their toy? Like, how's that, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, and so during adolescence is when, so they have a lot of play behavior in rats. Um, it rises in adolescence, and when they reach adulthood, it uh, declines. Um, when they reach adulthood. So it's a thing that's mostly in adolescence where they have to play behavior where they knock each other over and um, knock each other on their backs and kind of like try and uh, push them around and things and they do it um, to each other over and over again. Whereas when they reach adulthood, they don't really do that anymore. Um, And when they reach adulthood, what happens then is a lot of more aggressive behaviors occur where they'll actually um, stand up and start uh, boxing each other um, stand up on their two um, two back paws and actually box each other with their front paws and things of the sort with aggressive behaviors and actually um, break the skin with aggressive behaviors in adulthood, whereas in adolescence that doesn't um, happen very often at all. Mostly it's just pushing uh, rats over and kind of back and forth with that and then they just stop and kind of cuddle together and go to sleep and things like that in so adolescence. Does that differ between male and female or is that like a dominant uh, submissive mm-hmm. thing? Um, does differ between male and female. Um, I will say that uh, males do seem to be, uh, actually no, both females and females are aggressive when they're adults. Um, I, I do think that a lot more aggressive aggression is found in males though. Um, male rats when they reach adulthood compared to female rats when they reach adulthood. And so how does that change? So if they have 
Uh, I'm guessing there's two types of stressors, right? There's the chronic stress, right? There's constantly being stressed and there's yes. like the, just the immediate stress. Um, yes. Very short. Uh, how does that change their adolescent behavior mm -hmm. compared to where, where it should be? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to our work, so I do a social stressor with the rats um, and social in that uh, we take the rats and uh, one thing I should probably note is that rats, what most researchers try to do now is pair them uh, with cage partners uh, from birth, from when they're separated from uh, their moms, um, pair them with a cage partner because if you leave them alone and isolated, they are very much, they're much more vulnerable to all stressors right, when they're yeah. isolated like that and alone. Um, so all researchers now, most of them, are trying to eliminate that by keeping them with a cage partner. So our rats all have cage partners from uh, when they come into our lab. And what happens then is we do a social stressor, which involves isolating them from that cage partner. They don't like to be isolated. Uh, once they've had a partner for so long, they do not. Uh, you'll see their, uh, it's corticosterone for rats, so it's cortisol for humans. You'll see their corticosterone rise rapidly if they're isolated uh, from their cage partner. And then once they go back to that cage partner, it'll decline a lot faster wow. than if they went back to, say, an unfamiliar cage partner they've never met before, it, the oh, decline wow. will be... So it's not just having a person, it's, it's who the person is. It's who the person yeah. is, and they can uh, tell apart an unfamiliar from a familiar uh, rat that they've met before. Um, so my studies, we do social stress, and uh, I do isolation, and I do return to an unfamiliar cage partner, and I do that during adolescence. Um, and what we find is they have um, impairments, they have less social, they interact socially less um, right after the procedure as well as into adulthood, they interact less with other rats. So uh, they would be fighting less then? Um, not even fighting, but just uh, sniffing behaviors and things oh, like okay. that. Um, um, kind of starting social interactions, they don't do that as much as uh, rats that haven't been stressed. Uninterested. Mm -hmm. That's interesting for people who have cats and dogs. They, that's very similar. Very yes. similar. You isolate a dog, it's going to have social issues. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So social isolation is um, quite a big stressor. Um, that's what we use in our lab. And we find so many things. We find um, that they have, yes, impaired social behaviors. We have, they have impaired sexual behaviors as well when they reach adulthood. Um, they have impaired learning and memory behaviors. Um, and they have um, impaired um, other behaviors as well um, happen from this procedure. So you've seen some definite good data that can prove for sure that, hey, there's some, those traumatic stresses definitely affect mm -hmm. rats and possibly down yes. below humans. And when it comes to humans, I've had to read a lot about adolescent stress as well. And it's the same case in rats. A lot of stressors, you'll get a higher... Um, stress response, so higher corticosterone to uh, stressor, um, especially a social stressor in rats during adolescence. In humans, during adolescence, if you have a social stressor like talking in front of a class or something like that, you'll have higher um, cortisol release to that than adults will or than to um, children will as well. So adolescence is kind of a period of where social behavior is very important. Um, and can lead to a lot of vulnerabilities to stressors wow. as well. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. wow. yeah. Essentially, there's a lot of ways we can get messed up. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, definitely <laughs> there is. And that's how I see thing. it. Yeah. That's the thing whenever I'm in the stress course and I'm like looking at the students, like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you're going to have to learn, but cope, just cope. Please but cope. I think that it's beautiful in the sense of really understanding the environment that you were raised in could have an impact on how you're not only seeing life, but your behavior, yourself, your yes. social behavior. Yeah, it, was, it makes sense because I look at my own life, I was very, um, I guess, sheltered would be a good way to explain it, and very isolated from other kids. And because of that, I was very shy and have that mentality that I have now of being able to talk to anyone on the street and you know, I don't sniff anyone, um, but, yeah, <laughs> but I just go talking to them, right? Just a random stranger and be able to sort of say hi, right? Like, I didn't have that, you know? And so I said, I didn't dance before, but now I'm dancing. And so it's just like, these behaviors that are just more freeing and just more natural are coming too, but like that environment really conditioned me to, I say like, I'm guessing something must have changed my brain also mm -hmm. because of the, the chronic stressors um, throughout, throughout my life, there's you know, different ones that, that occurred. So I think that's, yeah, it's fascinating. And so we know that 
children themselves very malleable in uh, who they are and what they will become in the future based on the environment you provide them. Yes, exactly. And coping is very important from early life all the way um, up until adulthood. So there's a lot of stressors that happen in adulthood that we can actually, a lot of research has found that we can kind of shrug that off a little bit better. Like our um, things like changes in our brains won't occur as readily, or if they do occur, they'll change back um, in a couple weeks. Uh, whereas if these, this occurs in early life or in adolescence, those changes will kind of remain um, into adulthood and then yeah, deal with that. Neuroplasticity, our favorite word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that's an amazing thing. I, I, mo- I believe that you, know, you can change your brain and I'm sure that the work that you're doing will show people how maybe the, the path that they can take to doing that. Our pathways aren't necessarily cemented in. Yeah. Do you see it with rats too? Oh yeah, and it's not cemented in. And I'm uh, looking a lot right now at neurogenesis in adulthood too, because um, it's coming. It's kind of new, or that we're kind of figuring out that new neurons are still being born um, in when we're adults, and different different um, things stimuli can change um, the amount of new neurons being born. One of the things being social behavior. Um, social behaviors can lead to increases in uh, neurogenesis uh, when we're yeah. adults. Um, so you're saying but, everyone should be on this podcast? Everyone. Right, yeah, everyone should feel free to, you know, like talk more, right? And be more open yes. and make new friends. Yes, yes. And it's something that I hope um, after I'm uh, done with all those TAing, those uh, stress courses, um, that the students kind of take away because so a lot of what they read keeps telling them that coping, you must cope, you need to learn <laughs> to have something to kind of cope with your stressors, whether it's um, if you love to exercise and things like that, um, get out and do that to help you cope with different stressors. If you love music, if you listen to that to help you cope with different stressors, um, you kind of need something to um, <laughs> defend you, defend your brain from all these changes from yeah. stressors. And do you think it's... Uh, um, important for I think like our culture to talk to children about that because we're just talking to people who are you know 20 plus mm-hmm. years right so it's almost too late so if they've almost you know in the, in the sense of they've had a lot of stressors and they didn't know how to cope that's yes. it's a hard thing to take a course and change your behavior after that it's pretty tough right mm-hmm. um so for children what what are you um what would you say for them yeah anything for children what is it's it's something that I think um, people already kind of know that um, when they tell their kids to go out and play and have fun and do things like that, like, I think that's um, a good thing for them to help them um, cope with different um, stresses in their lives. Um, friends is a big thing uh, from when we're young all the way to <laughs> when we're adults, that um, having that social group to come to um, with all your stressors is uh, very important, and even even not even to talk about the stressors themselves, but just to have um, knowing that someone's there, uh, having that, and even family as well, mm-hmm. having that family unit to mm-hmm. come to um, helps with um, all of that. So if they're a child that's a bit more isolated, um, they might have a bit more. Uh, they could ha- end up with a lot more impairments later on right. um, as adults. So. It's interesting too because you look at sort of the physical contact of like the family being there, but there's so much now with technology of trying to like you know the Facebooks and Instagram stuff to feel connected to people. And I wonder if that is a is a help or a hinder in the sense of you know which one's better as people move forward in life because the, there's this new sort of movement to like having friends online yes. or video gaming friends right where you just talk to them through, through a voice box or something or you play against them right so it's interesting how the culture is changing and you know their coping strategies um, would have to change also and is that a good coping strategy I don't know but it's just it's interesting how our environment is changing. Um, it's too bad you can't say it with rats because rats don't care about Facebook, right? Like, yeah. They, yeah, right? yeah. They haven't got there yet. Sadly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <One day soon. laughs> yeah so uh, moving forward. So rats love being around others. What else yes. do they love to do? Um, well, besides uh, being social, <laughs> they love very simple. Dance parties. They, they love, love your dance parties in the lab. <laughs> they love exploring novel objects. Oh, okay. Is the thing that they really like. 
Um, so if we put anything new in their cage, um, at first, still actually stress them out. <laughs> and they'll have that port serum rise uh, to any new object that you put in their cage. Uh, but they do like exploring um, new environments, new objects and things. So a lot of um, coping strategies that I've seen in papers kind of, they would um, do uh, environmental enrichment um, with the rats when they're young. So put them in an environment that has a lot of different objects in it, um, and then they wouldn't be as um, vulnerable to stressors later on. Um, so give them all that, enrich their environment with a bunch of different objects and things, and um, other rats that they can play with, and that will help them to cope against stressors later on. Oh, that's nice. And so what, what things maybe don't they like? Are there things that they don't like doing? Um, okay, so one I've already talked about is they don't like isolation. Okay. Um, they hate isolation. <laughs> um, I should have said that they do like uh, sugary beverages. Oh, just like me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if it's sugar and alcoholic beverage, they will drink it. Oh, yeah. Very much so as well. Um, <laughs> they love sugar. Um, things they hate, uh, it's a lot. Do you like getting wet? Like, like swimming or anything like that? Like, isn't there a stressor? Really? There is a stressor that involves some swimming, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly it's because there isn't a place where they can come off and get onto a platform oh, to get out okay. of that stressor. Okay. So it's more of kind of a hopeless situation of you're just swimming. Right. Um, instead of having like a platform to land on. If they had a platform and they had water and they could swim freely, they'd probably oh, not take that. They wouldn't, okay. It wouldn't be as much of a stressor at all. Yeah. Um, but when there is no way to escape a stressor, of course, they will find it okay. <laughs> very much so. So it's just like a really bland environment, um, not, not, not a lot of people, mm -hmm. and bland food. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, yes. all right. Yes. All right, nice. And so just another question is, do you see like different personalities that comes to rats? Because you must come in contact with different rats all the time. Mm -hmm. And I've never, I can't say I've seen rats in uh, environment. I've seen a couple run across the floor, mm -hmm. but I've never actually uh, seen it. So like when you see these individual rats a lot, like do you notice like small different things in yeah. each one? I'm going to have to take you over to the animal lab. Yeah, you can have to show me. Yeah, <laughs> I literally video. can take people there. Like, it's not a huge thing. Um, and they are really cute. We <laughs> do love showing people them. Um, but there's a lot of individual differences in rats. And a lot of it comes out in our research too. We'll have rats that will go through our stress procedure and they won't have as many um, impairments in social behavior. They won't have as many um, impairments in memory and things like that. And for some reason, they're more resilient to um, our stress procedure, even though they've grown up kind of the same way as the other rats have. Um, so there is something there that the rats do differ from each other um, in how they take in uh, different social stressors, how they take in, um, how they respond to social behaviors. There's differences in our rats. Um, from what I've seen, um, in our rats so far, not too, not too huge of differences in cage-wise. Um, there is a thing that happens where some of them will, uh, my isolation procedure involves them going into kind of a Tupperware container, uh, which gives them enough room to move around in, but usually what the, and they end up doing is going to sleep um, by the time I come back and get them out of that Tupperware container. Um, but some of them will, for the life of them, try to escape that Tupperware container um, for the whole amount of time. And my isolation is usually an hour long. So after about 10 minutes, I'll look back in the room, some are sleeping, and some rats are trying so hard to escape, and some rats do escape, um, break that container open and escape into the room and do that. And that's um, just a whole, whole type of, uh, another type of personality of rats that uh, they can't take, uh, they won't just rest when you put them into a container, they will uh, try their hardest and darndest to escape no matter what. And so do you, do you breed the rats there or do you find them on the streets of St. Catharines or what do you, where do you find these? <laughs> yeah, so we yeah. actually have them come in from the States, oh, actually. Okay. Um, there is a breeding facility in the States, it used to be one in Montreal, but they don't carry the rats that we use, which are Long Evans uh, rats. Okay. Uh, the strain of rats we use, and we, we use that strain because they are very social mm -hmm. uh, rats, they do love uh, being social. There are some rats that do like um, uh, being alone a bit more so than others, and our Long Evans rats do like to be more social oh, okay. during adolescence, and so they kind of mimic 
um, that increases sociability that happens in humans as well during adolescence. Okay. And, um, mm -hmm. and so uh, just lastly, before we start talking about your grief, I just want to sort of, uh, can you touch on why research with rats is important and why can't you just use humans? Mm -hmm. So it's a tough thing because I love the rats so much yeah. uh, <laughs> now. And I think that's anything that I've ever worked with. I used to work with birds and pigeons and things. Now if I see a pigeon, uh, along the sidewalk, I'm like, oh, you're so cute. Everybody else is like, I hate those pigeons. Um, but it's the thing that, you know, the kind of research that I do, like I couldn't take people, um, humans, and put them under, well, I can't, let's see, if I isolated them um, and then <laughs> put them with a new person they've never met and do that to them every day for 16 days, um, that might fly, but then if I wanted to look into their brains to see how that's changed from um, this interaction, um, what I do um, requires me to actually take their brains um, and uh, slice them into smaller sections to get at the different brain regions mm -hmm. and to actually see which cells are um, either being activated by the stressor, which cells are um, expressing some kind of uh, interesting protein that I want to look at. Um, so I need to be able to um, look inside the brains, which I wouldn't be able to do with humans. Yeah, and you would be able to stress them out, really, right? Yes. To take a kid away from his parent for 16 yes. weeks or something, and put him in a different environment. Even in adolescence, <laughs> if they agreed, it's a whole different type of person that agrees to do a stressor <laughs> thing. I think there's laws around that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the main thing, is understanding that like not all research can be done with humans because of the ethics involved, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And especially since you do know these negative effects are occurring, like how can you put a, like I said, a human through that, knowing that it's going to have these negative effects? Um, so what our research kind of does, and it's um, uh, getting to me a bit more now, um, and actually being able to see like uh, the citations that my papers are getting uh, now, that people are actually taking these papers and using them to form their own predictions um, and things like that um, in either other species, like seeing papers in other species, but they can take um, our uh, papers and kind of translate some of that to what might occur in humans and then um, use that as kind of a basis to start at. So these are the changes that we've seen in rats from a social stressor, so they might be the same ones that we find in humans. Is there a way to look in humans to see after they've been stressed, kind of not by the lab themselves, but by um, their, own social, their own experiences um, when they were younger, do we see those same changes in either behavior, but changes in the brain, do we still oh, see okay. those in humans um, that are similar to what we find in rats? Very interesting, very interesting. Mm -hmm. So speaking of stress, um, this is the Grief Dreams podcast, so how in your life, how have you dealt with the stress that grief brings, and, and mm -hmm. in your uh, whether with loved ones or with pets? Mm -hmm. So um, it's strange, I've, had, I've lost um, a couple people into my life, um, family members, um, close friends of the family that aren't actually family members, um, that as a child, they were always there when I grew up. Um, they were so nice to me and so great to me, and then now they're just kind of gone. Um, and when uh, I did lose them, there was that coping that I did use that was music, and there was specific songs that I kind of linked to um, losing each of them. Um, and that I would kind of listen to on repeat over and over and over again to kind of help me uh, get through uh, losing those people. Yeah. Um, but I've always been kind of strange when it comes to loss in that uh, I won't <laughs> express much emotion, um, crying or anything for a long, 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 long time until it comes to, when it comes to the, the actual day of the funerals themselves, only when I see someone else um, expressing those kind of emotions, then I kind of start feeling those emotions myself. Um, and there's a specific example, a funny, funny example of um, me and my mom being at um, the funeral for uh, one of my aunts that passed away when I was uh, quite young. I think I was around 12 or so. Um, and being at the funeral, my mom's also, she's usually the strong one in her group and kind of um, doesn't cry much at all either. Um, and so there was just the two of us kind of sitting there and we were sitting there, we were being so strong for the longest time, not really strong, but we were being not expressing much emotion, kind of remembering things that we loved about this person. And then 
she asked me at one point, just, um, can you pass me a tissue? And I just bursted out crying and laughing at the same time. And she bursted out crying and laughing at the same time. We were just laugh crying this whole time. And, this, and I felt so, it felt so good. It also felt so bad. So I was like, what are people going to think? We're laughing over here. But it's just how kind of we were expressing the emotion at the time. That's true, because everyone has different emotions. Hey, sometimes they make jokes at a funeral, mm -hmm. um, or you know, say like sometimes you're crying, but it's more acceptable to cry at a funeral than laugh. Yes. And so, yeah, it's interesting that you sort of said that, but all those emotions are valid. Yes, and it kind of helped us get through it yeah, the, together. The relief, crying, I, I'm, I'm similar where I don't really cry that much, I can't. Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I want to. Yes. It would feel good. I know that feeling. But uh, it's weird. Like, like you know, I've been to a lot of funerals when I was younger, and I wouldn't cry or anything. But mm -hmm. uh, even now, uh, I dealt with it through writing a lot. Um, there was, a, there was a, a fellow student in grade nine. I don't know, you weren't at my school at that time, Josh. Uh, his name is Steven Arado, and he was crossing the street, and he got hit by a car, and he passed away. And I remember sitting there, and do you remember Puff Daddy missing you? Yes. Oh, that yes. song was big back then. I so I, I wrote out my own lyrics uh, to him, yes. and it was my way of kind of saying goodbye. Yeah. And, you know, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah we we all definitely have our own uh, different ways of dealing with grief and and how we go about doing that. Something in my life a lot because I do as I work with rats and I do take their brains and that means that I have to become um, someone that can euthanize at a very fast rate and kind of there is a toll that um, is taken on you and there's if you see them express any kind of um, knowing that the euthanization is occurring you uh, definitely take that in and um, it hurts a lot to know that they know what's going on. You want to do it as fast that they don't know what's happening and you're taking their brains and that's um, done. But it's, it does take a toll out of you. And if the number is over a certain threshold, um, it does end with me kind of having to go home and sit in a quiet room uh, with the lights kind of off and just kind of um, <laughs> yeah. sending things out and put music in and just kind of sit there. I love like hearing it because it's saying that you don't just see him as like a number. Mm -hmm. You see him as an animal, a soul, a, like a being. Um, yes. And you became friendly, you had a bond with it, right? Yeah, so you don't want any of those numbers to go to waste ever. Yeah, and yeah, we've sacrificed our lives to help um, science and help us come up with new yes. cures and surgeries and whatnot. Yes, and then that way they kind of, yeah, they keep going. We, um, keep their brains and we keep doing tests on them and we hope that um, this way we don't have to do it again to a bunch of to other rats we can kind of keep doing different procedures with what we have and um, that'll lead others to start their own research um, and continue um, what we've begun. That's very interesting yeah because I never really like thought about that um, but you have to really live a lot of suffering mm -hmm. um, after you do what you do. So you're trying to have all, you have all the pressure of academia on you, but you're also have to sit with your own grief and process that in your own way yes. to move forward to the next study, to move forward to the next project. Not you know? everyone can do it. No. I've had volunteers that have been, um, you kind of know which volunteers will kind of keep on mm -hmm. and keep in this part of research and which volunteers will um, not be able to um, take this kind of of emotional stress that happens very often in my field. Wow. Okay, so well, thank you for sharing that. Now we do talk a little bit more, um, but maybe we'll have you on another time, another podcast mm -hmm. to share some more stories of loss, some different ways you process that along the way. But now comes the, like the the dream. So, have you ever had a dream of, let's say, even like the rats after they passed away, mm -hmm. or one of your uh, loved ones, family members? Uh, yes. Have you ever experienced that? I haven't had any dreams of the rats. <laughs> Sadly, um, I have had dreams of people that I've lost um, being in, people that I lost being in those dreams. But what usually occurs is I'll have a dream, they'll be in it, and it'll feel like they were never gone, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. There'll just be another um, person that's within the dream, I don't know why. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but they'll just be there and it would be like everything's normal, everything's regular. Um, I don't, I talk to them, everything's great. They okay. come with me on whatever journey. My dreams are usually kind of adventures. <laughs> um, escape so rooms. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's probably why I love escape rooms so much. Um, they come, yeah, they come with me on whatever adventures I go on and they're so just we, there and then the dream ends and I remember that they're gone. And it's, wow, that's interesting. So like in the dream, you don't recognize that they've actually passed away. So yes. the conversations you have would be very different. In the sense of because you're not talking about everyday life, right? Yes. You're just talking about this journey. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they just um, they're just a part of my regular cohorts at that point, and then you kind of don't realize that they're gone until you wake up. Wow. So what does that feel like when you wake up and and that moment where you really know? It kind of it's a feeling of um, kind of a remembrance that mm. I'm like happy that I remembered them uh, this okay, night yeah. and. Um, that's kind of what I take away from it. But I'm happy that they came into my dream because they, they don't want to uh, forget any of them, and I don't forget any of them. Yeah, yeah they're not, not on my mind all the time. So when they do come um, in that kind of form into my dream, and I wake up and I think about uh, this person that I've lost, um, it's great that they were able to help me get through this journey last night. <laughs> so do you always succeed in your journey? In your dream? I I am pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I must well, say yeah, yeah. my matrix moves are on master's <laughs> level. <laughs> I can slow down time when I want. Oh, wow. It's really amazing. In my You're gonna adapt very well to virtual reality like, when it comes. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm afraid of it. Well, Travis. Thank you so much. We appreciate uh, this interview. It's been it's been wonderful. The work you're doing is very important. Yeah, where, where can you find your work? So you've you've done the, this work. You said you had four publications. Where can they find this stuff? Yes, I'm. Well, if you look up uh, Travis Ellington Hodges, I am. There are papers that will pop up for me on Google Scholar. Okay. Um, and things like that. Um, so that's a good place to kind of search for the work that I have coming out. Um, I did start uh, my own. Kind of, I think I have an account on there right now too, so I can put my publications into that account. Oh, nice. You can just click on my name and it'll just give you all the papers I've published. Oh, beautiful. Um, so I've started doing that too. So on Google Scholar, you can definitely find me, T.E. Hodges or Travis Ellington Hodges, I'm there somewhere. Nice, nice. <laughs> so hopefully you get some more views on that. And so mm -hmm. if they do, if they can't find you on that, they can always go to the Brock University website okay. and under people in the department, if you go down to graduate students, you'll see uh, uh, yeah, his contact information for your email address uh, here. Email address for sure. Yeah, and so um, yeah, yeah. I hope you guys like the podcast. Uh, please check out our newsletter at creativechains.ca, and we got the uh, Instagram account also um, that's running. So if you have Instagram and you want to look at those, it's all about grief um, and grief dreams, and also about love because that's sort of what. Grief is all about uh, remaining and being connected and, and still loving those that have passed. You can check out our uh, podcast at podbean.com. Just look up Grief Dreams Podcast. Also available on iTunes. So you can check it out on your iPhone. Uh, and finally, if you have any comments or questions, you can definitely email us at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And please join the Facebook group. Yeah, so we have lots of stuff going on. And yeah, this is actually... Um, we're loving the support that we are getting and support from the people who are coming and want to share their story. And so thank you so much, Travis, for being on, sharing some of your journey when it comes to your research, but also your grief journey and talking a little bit about that and helping um, hopefully some listeners um, feel more comfortable doing some of these coping strategies like dancing and singing and feeling like it's normal. Thank you for having me. Travis, we'll be back. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. beginning.